Well, good morning. It's good to be with you all this morning. Thankful for the opportunity to bring the Word of God as Pastor Clint is traveling in the Philippines, meeting with the missionaries that we support there, not only Daryl and Becky Martin, but also the whole KBIG team working among Unreached Muslim People Group in the Southern Philippines. If you're curious about those works, you can look at the pictures in the hallway over here to see some of the the names and faces of people Pastor Clint is spending time with connecting this week um, on his trip. So, uh, with him away, I get the opportunity to bring the Word of God this morning. Have you heard about the, um, the latest technological innovations going on out there in the realm of artificial intelligence? Anybody heard about this uh, new, new thing, ChatGPT? It's been in the news for a few months, and I've been following it along, especially uh, from an academic perspective of um, teachers and college professors thinking about what does this mean as we, um, as we teach students, uh, and in, 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 in my line of work, as we make disciples, you know, what, what is the application of this, this technology? But I haven't had a chance to, to try it out myself. I've just been kind of putting it off until... Um, Last week, early last week, my son said, um, he said, hey, Dad, check this out. I, uh, I got this new, um, this new app, and if I type in the, um, the questions to my science homework, it'll give me an essay that I can turn in. And he shows me this. Sure enough, put in the chat, the copy, paste, boom, homework's done, right? So I thought, well, oh, man, I got I to gotta wrap my... My, my head around what's going on here and what does this mean for our families, for our, for our world. Um, this is a powerful tool. And so, uh, as Connor mentioned, as I got ready to, um, to, to share the Word of God with you guys today, I thought, huh, what would happen if I asked ChatGPT to give me a sermon to share at Hope Church? So I, I said, Hope Church, uh, said, ChatGPT, uh, write a sermon. Um, based on Genesis chapter 11, about the, um, uh, the, the, the topic of human technology. So I, I thought that would be kind of ironic to have the artificial intelligence write a sermon about, um, about itself a little bit. So, and sure enough, it spat out a whole text for me to get up here and read to you. Um, now, I'm not going to do that. Uh, I, Connor said I, I, I had AI write the sermon. It wrote a sermon. I'm not going to give you that sermon. I'm giving you my own work. I just want to be clear on that. But, but um, it, it, it's insightful, I think. Just I thought maybe I'd just share you the conclusion of ChatGPT's sermon. So you can, um, you can think about this. This, is, this, this has ramifications for, for all of us. Uh, so the, ser- the, the conclusion of the sermon, the first sermon it spat out, by the way, was a little, little bit wishy-washy, um, something you might hear maybe in more of a liberal, feel-good type church. So I said, ChatGPT, make it more exegetical. So it wrote out a whole new sermon that went point by point through the text and sounded like something we might, we might hear here in Hope Church. And the conclusion says, in conclusion, the story of the Tower of Babel reminds us that our technology must be used in a way that is consistent with our true purpose and identity as children of God. We must be willing to acknowledge our limitations, to submit to God's will, and to use our technology to further His purposes rather than our own. May God grant us the wisdom 
and humility to use our gifts and talents for his glory. Amen. I could just drop the mic right here, right? And <laughs> there you go. Are you, are, are you ready for a robot pastor? I mean, um, it, was, it was in the news that um, pastors have started experimenting with this technology. Uh, one pastor says, hey, if I, if I use AI to help me write my sermons, I have that much more time to invest in people's lives during the week and provide more counsel. Uh, some of us as, as pastors are more wired for that side of the job than for the speaking side of the job. So maybe that can be a, a tool we could use. And, and we're thinking through these things. As, as a society, of what, what this means. A robot pastor might be a great idea until, you know, the AI starts going rampant and then, and then we start getting uh, uh, crazy advice and counsel. But um, all that to say, uh, we have a lot to think about. You ever feel like the world is just leapfrogging over you, passing you by, and you, cannot just, you can just not keep up with all of these developments, all these rapid changes, what they mean not only personally, but for our jobs, for our families, uh, what kind of world are our kids going to grow up in. Uh, you know, I sound like, like an old person up here saying this now, I feel like. like <laughs> but, but it's true. Um, and we need to, um, we need to be uh, constantly, as the people of God, engaging these questions and thinking about them. What do you do when you start feeling lost in this time of, you know, rapid global economic, uh, economic globalization, technological advancement that is kind of beyond what our, what our minds can, can even dream up and imagine? How do we respond to that? Well, the comforting truth is that this is not a new situation. Yes, it is new, new technology around us today, not only AI, but uh, DNA sequencing, genetic engineering, you, know, you name it. The technologies are new, but the questions are, are age old. And even going back to the, the ancient society that we're going to be looking at today in the pages of Scripture, we see humanity wrestling with the same questions. Ancient people faced technological innovation and the question of how do we use it back then just like we do today. How are people supposed to appropriately exercise this God-given ingenuity that he's given us at creation? How are we supposed to navigate these questions? How do we how do we exercise the, the creativity that God has wired us with as human beings in a good way? We're going to look at a story today, um, as Connor mentioned, the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. And as you know, this, this story gives us an example not of what to do, but of what not to do. So if, you, if you'd like, you can open up your Bible, Genesis 11, chapters, uh, verses 1 to 9 is where, where we're going to be focusing today. And I'll tell you the story here, and then we'll talk about it a little bit. <clears throat> so, the whole earth spoke the same language, and everyone was using the same vocabulary. And people migrated to the east, and they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. And they said, come on, 
let's make bricks. And let's burn them in fire so that they become hard. And so they used bricks instead of stone. And for mortar, they used asphalt. And they said, come on, let's build a city and a tower whose top reaches up into the heavens. And let's make a name for ourselves so that we won't be scattered across the face of the earth. And Yahweh came down to see the city and the tower that they were building. And he said, look, these people are working together as one, and they all speak the same language. This is only the beginning of what they're going to be able to accomplish. Anything they put their minds to will be possible for them. Come. Let's confuse their language so that they can no longer understand one another. And so Yahweh scattered them across the earth. And they stopped building the city. And the city was named Babylon because it was there that God made people babble. And it was from there that he scattered them across the face of the whole earth. That's the end of our story. Uh, We'll go through it again uh, point by point textually here. But um, before we do that, it's important for us to consider the, uh, the context of this story. How it fits into the other passages around it and the overall narrative of creation. Um, and in terms of the broad context, looking at the book of Genesis, we see this story, the Tower of Babel, coming at the very end of what I like to call the, the downward spiral of humanity that started back in Genesis chapter 3. So in Genesis 1 and 2, we have the story of God, God's creation. God creates the universe, he plants a beautiful garden in a land called Eden, and he puts men and women in that garden and gives them a position of leadership and authority. Says, this is for you, now it's your job to rule over it. And that's, the, uh, that's the, the, the role that he gave people in creation, kind of as the, as, the, as the heads of creation, as the leadership over all the fish and the, the birds and everything, everything in the world. God puts humans in the garden to exercise his leadership and care over all creation. Of course, they go their own way and they're cast out of the garden in chapter 3. And then humanity enters into this this nosedive. Imagine one of those airplanes at an air show going, getting ready to crash into the ground. Uh, We have um, Cain in Genesis chapter 4 kills his brother Abel. Adam and Eve thought Cain was surely the promised seed that was coming to crush the serpent's head. And then here, no, he crushes his brother's head instead. Well, God raises up another, another son, Seth, and through the line of Seth. But we see things even continue to get worse to where Lamech at the end of chapter 4 brags that I'll kill anyone just for, uh, just for wounding me. Um, until it gets to, we get to the, the flood 
in the story of Noah where things get so bad that God judges the earth, sends a giant flood, preserves one family, the seed, the seed line that he's going to use to set things right. And then from there, people come out of the flood and start repopulating the earth. And that's what leads us to, to Genesis chapter 11. What do people do when they come out of that ark? Well, the first thing we see them doing is building this city to make a name for themselves. And once again, how does it end? It ends in judgment, a curse. God scattering them and confusing their languages. So that's the broader context. Things are very bleak in the, in the storyline of humanity in the story of God's plan to redeem creation and set things, things straight. Seems to be going from bad to worse to terrible. Um, more narrowly, more immediately in the context, we see that this story in Genesis 11 is, is bracketed by two genealogies. Now the genealogies of, of scripture are often those things that we skip over in our Bible reading or, you know, father of, father, I can't even pronounce these names. And we have two genealogies and they are, they are important to pay attention to because they play into the structure and the meaning of the stories. They set up the stories for how we're supposed to understand them. And it's interesting, the, Genesis, the genealogy in Genesis chapter 10, right after Noah comes out of the ark, tells the family line of Noah's three sons, and it focuses on one son in particular, the genealogy of Noah's son Shem. And if you trace the genealogy in chapter 10, it's the, the family tree of Shem. And then, in Genesis 11, following the story of the Babel, we have another genealogy, and once again, it's the family tree of Shem. So the story is bracketed by the family tree of Shem. The first one traces the, the, the family line of Shem through his, his um, descendant Eber all the way through. And we see there were two brothers at the end of Genesis 10. There was Joktam and Peleg. Joktam and Peleg. And the genealogy of Genesis 10 tells us the sons of Joktam. And how does it end? It ends in this founding of this great city, Babylon, and judgment on God's people. And then in Genesis 11, after this story, there's a, the next genealogy. Same guy, Shem, and his family, down through Joktam and Peleg. But then it focuses on Peleg. And who were Peleg's descendants? Well, as we trace them on, who do we finally get to at the end of chapter 11? We get to the family of Abram. And who eventually comes from the family of Abram? We see in Genesis chapter 12, God says, Abram, I'm going to take you. I'm going to make you into a great nation. And I'm going to use you to bless the whole world. It's the family of Abram that produces the nation of Israel. So contextually here we see the author of Genesis setting up a split in the family line that goes from Adam through Seth, through Noah, through Shem, and it comes to these two, this branch, Joktam and Peleg. And the descendants of Joktam 
The, the, the story ends with them founding Babylon and being scattered. And then it goes on. Shem's descendants through Peleg, through Peleg, we get to the family of Abram and the eventual founding of the Israelite nation who God uses to bring his Messiah into the world. So it's an interesting structure that we see following here, and the author is kind of setting up the whole the worldly paradigm of Babylon versus the plan of God through Israel. And we have a comparison of how people respond to God and his instructions and his promises and plans for humanity. So the downward spiral here, this is the last account of the downward spiral. How does it end? It ends with the founding of Babylon and the scattering of humanity. And then the author shifts in chapter 12 away from the downward spiral to God's plan to step in and fix things. So in our story today, this is what happens when people take matters into their own hands. This is what happens when people take matters into their own hands, try to use their creativity, their ingenuity, their skills to do something on their own. And then in chapter 12, we get to the whole rest of the story of Scripture of God taking matters into his hands, making a name for people, and making a plan for their salvation and ultimate deliverance through the promised seed, the Messiah who comes. So this is an important story in our understanding of God's plan for the world and his, his desire to set things straight. Let's go through the story again, just um, kind of point by point. There's a few things as we go through the story that I think are important for us to notice and consider so that we can really wrap, wrap our mind around things. So the story starts out and it says that the whole earth spoke one language. They all had the same words, the same common vocabulary. Now, um, that might be kind of confusing because if you've just read Genesis chapter 10, three times in Genesis chapter 10 as it traces these family descendants of Noah, it says that these, these families all had their own languages. They divided up according to their own languages. Three times in chapter 10. Um, first in verse 5, it says, They were divided, um, spread out into their territories, by their clans, within their nations, each with its own language. And that phrase repeats three times in chapter 10. People divided up and each had their own language. So then why does it say in Genesis 11 that the whole land spoke one language? Well, it's a, it's a question worth considering. Um, and uh, there, there, there's, a th there, there, there's three main ideas of what could be going on here. One, it's possible that even though they all had their own local languages, there could have been a global trade language that everybody understood, since they all came from the common family line of Noah, they'd have all understood the local, the global trade language, even though they might all have their own local dialects that they used to speak to one another um, on a day-by-day -day basis. That's the case in Ethiopia, where I do a lot of work. Hundreds of tribal languages in Ethiopia, but then there are three main languages that everybody in Ethiopia understands, one of these three main languages. And then English has been adopted as the language of education, and a lot of business happens in English in Ethiopia. So 
um, could be a similar situation like that, where everybody has their own language, but, but they all understand and speak the one main language. That could be. By the way, we, we're seeing the same thing today quite rapidly as English is being adopted globally as a common language um, that, that people want to learn all around the world, uh, learning to speak English. Uh, uh, another option could be that, um, that this is a, a regional focus. Could be that the author does not have the whole, you know, the whole earth in mind, but when he says the whole world, that, 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 that word in verse 1 is Eretz, which is land. Now he says, so, so literally he says, now everyone in all the land spoke the same language, Eretz. So it could be, he could be referring to a local land. You know, that land we call Mesopotamia. Uh, everyone in Mesopotamia spoke the same language. That's a possibility. Um, or lastly, um, and, and this one is maybe the one that makes a little more sense, is that we have some chronological reordering. So chapter 10 kind of traces it all down. And yes, eventually they all ended up in these tribal groups with their own language. That's the big picture. But how did they get there? How did they all get to, to their own language? The author steps back and tells the story of where all those languages came from. So a few different options for how we might understand that. But, and, and, and all of those would be compatible with the way we understand the world and the languages uh, that we have in the world today. Um, so uh, all, any one of those options are, 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 are quite feasible. Um, I tend to favor the third. They all started out speaking one language, God broke them up, and this is the story of how it, how it came about. So they all spoke the same language, and they could all understand each other, one way or another. Everybody in this story was on the same page, and because of that, they could accomplish great things together. And it says then that they migrated eastward, or to the east. They moved to the east. Why is that important? Well, again, it plays into this downward spiral that we've, we've seen since the Garden of Eden. Every time we see in, in these early chapters of Genesis of people going eastward, they're moving farther and farther away from what? They're moving farther and farther away from the Garden of Eden. Farther and farther away from what ultimately becomes in Genesis chapter 12 to 15, that what, what the author is setting us up for, the promised land. The promised land is in the west. It's as far west as you can go in this part of the world before you run into the ocean. So the promised land, which the author is introducing us to, is in the west. And all through these early stories of Genesis, people are going east. They're going east. Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, and God puts an angel where? On the eastern side of the garden, so that they can't come back towards the west. And then Cain. Cain kills his brother, and he's cursed to go and wander. And where does he wander? He goes further east and wanders in the land of Nod. And here again, we see people settling in the east, further east, the land of Shinar, which we understand historically to be uh, what, what was Mesopotamia and eventually became known as Babylon. 
uh, modern-day Iraq is where it is. So they're going east, 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 until Genesis 12. Actually, it's at the end of 11. A family does something quite remarkable. Where do they go? At the end of chapter 11, that family of Abraham, his, fa his father Terah takes the family, and they start going west. And then God says in chapter 12 to Abram, go to the land I show you. And where does God take him? He takes him back west and says, this is the land that I'm going to use to establish my reign over all the earth and to bring the Messiah eventually. So this movement to the east represents the people resisting the plan of God and going their own way, straying further and further away from the land of promise. They head to the east. Under, they're all speaking one language. They go find this fertile plain in, uh, in Mesopotamia, and they say, let's build a city. And we see an interesting feature of this city. What do they use to build this city? It says that they start making bricks. They say to each other, come, let's make bricks and let's burn them in fire. So when you, when you get wet clay and you shape it, you put it into a mold, and then you let it dry, you basically end up with, um, with a, a lump of dry dirt. You know, and if you hit that hard enough, it'll, it'll crumble pretty quickly. It's a cake of dried mud. But if you burn it, and if you use the right kind of clay, and you put it into a kiln and fire it, it becomes rock hard. And this is technology that we have today. Uh, even, even still today, St. Louis was called the brick city at one point because of all the brick that we use locally here. I live in a, in a brick house, and many of you probably do too. This is enduring technology, but here we see its inception. People settle in this land, and they say, let's make brick. Somehow, someone has the idea, and there's a technological innovation. No longer are they trying to find enough stones of equal size and arrange them together to, to make a meager shelter. Now they have this great, versatile, easily reproduced building material that they can put together and they can use that to make a great city. And they can, they can build a giant tower that stretches up into the heavens with this brick. So there's a technological innovation we see here. People are using their God-given ingenuity that God gave them at the point of creation. Remember, God's made them in his image. He made them with similar qualities. And what is the main quality we see of God in Genesis 1? He's a creative God. And he makes people in his image, meaning he makes creative and innovative people who have this talent to come up with ideas and make inventions, and advance technology in the world using the resources he's given them. God gave them everything they needed to make bricks, and then they figure it out. But what do they do with these bricks? What do they, how do they use these bricks? Whose name are they building here? It's interesting. Do they say, let's make a name for Yahweh? They say, let's make a name for ourselves. We're going to make this great city. 
We're going to make a tower that reaches up to the heavens so anyone from any of the land around can come and see, wow, look at these great people who made this city. Aren't they awesome? And what is their reasoning behind this? It's so that we will not be scattered over the face of the earth. You say, well, what's wrong with that? None of us want to be scattered over the face of the earth, do we? That sounds kind of, kind of negative. Um, well, you've got to understand it within the context of God's command that he gave to, to Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis chapter 1. What did God say to them when he placed them in that garden and gave them the role and said, let them rule over creation? He then gave them a command in Genesis 1.28. What is it? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and rule over it. And of course that rule is the rule of a of a benevolent king, someone that God has put on the earth to, to, to not, um, not abuse it and oppress it, but to take care of it and to oversee the worship of all creation to the creator. And he wants them to fill the earth so that they can reign over it justly. But what do people want to do here? They resist that command. We're not going to fill the earth. By the way, that same command was repeated after they came out of the ark. Be fruitful, multiply. But once again, the people don't want to fill the earth. They want to hunker down and make a name, not for Yahweh in all the earth, but for themselves. And they build this city so that they won't be scattered. Now at the middle of the story the scene shifts, right? Notice, at the very middle of the story, focus changes to the heavenly courts, to Yahweh himself. And it's interesting, the people are trying to build this tower up, 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 up to the heavens, right? But the author puts it all in perspective for us. Yahweh, who's in the heavens, what does he have to do to see this tower? He has to come down to their level. I mean, the greatest, most awesome technological marvel that people have achieved to date in the story. And they think, oh, look at this tower going up to the heavens. <laughs> Yahweh in his heavenly throne. What are they doing down there? They have to come down and take a look. So it's showing us how majestic and all-powerful God is even in comparison to the greatest human achievement, this great tower that they think is so great. Yahweh comes down, figuratively speaking, of course. We understand that he's omnipresent, he's a spiritual being, but the author puts it in human terms for us to understand. This is, these guys, they've got this little tower here. That, that's cute. I'm going to go check it out, right? And so Yahweh comes down and sees what they're doing. And he acknowledges the ingenuity that he's given them. He says, look, they're all speaking the same language, and nothing that they put their mind to will be impossible for them. That is a testament to how God has wired us as human beings. The creativity, the ingenuity, the inventive capability that he's given us, it continues even to this day. 
where we're today starting to invent things like artificial intelligence and um, um, talking about space travel and genetic manipulation and um, all of these things that nobody would have ever imagined even a couple hundred years ago. Humanity is still using these God-given talents of creativity. So God, God is not surprised by this. It's who he made us to be. And it honors God when we use those talents to a good end. But in this case, they are using their talents to resist his will, to resist his plan to populate the earth with, um, with a, uh, a global population of people to, to take care of it and to rule over it justly and beneficently. Instead, they're resisting that and trying to pursue their own end. And so, notice that God, just like the people who say, come, let's do this and let's do that and build a city, God says, come, let's confuse their languages. You ever wonder who God's speaking to here, by the way? Some people say, well, maybe he's speaking to angels or other angelic, other heavenly beings. Other people who, um, who, who, who might be less... Um, receptive of the idea of the inspiration of scripture say oh that's a remnant from back when people were polytheistic and they believed in a lot of gods and so this was an, an example of the gods talking to each other and then and then eventually the people jewish people became monotheistic and they revised their stories and this is just a remnant um, that's not what we're seeing here what we're seeing here is a very early reminder of what the church later came to understand as the Trinity. The Trinity. I'm not saying that Moses, the author of Genesis, um, understood the Trinity, but he did understand enough about God to realize that there was some sort of plurality to the Godhead. He often uses a term for God, Elohim. Elohim is in a plural form in Hebrew, hinting at some sort of, of plurality within the unity of God. And even going back to the very first chapter of Genesis, we see two members of the Godhead working in unison to create. He says, God created the, the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and what was over the surface of the waters? The Spirit of God. The Spirit of God. So we've got the, the Father and the Spirit. Where's the Son? Well, we don't realize the Son was there until we get to the book of Colossians, and we're told the Son was part of... That's, that's all later. But even in the early passages of Genesis, we have these, these hints. And notice what God said when he made people and gave them that position of authority. He used the same plural voice. He said, let us make man in our image. And he gives them that mission. And notice he doesn't come back to that. After that, it's all singular, talking about God, until we get to then the end of the downward spiral where people are trying to make their own city, their own name. And he goes he go back to that plural, uh, plural voice and said, let 
us confuse their languages, linking the two accounts. The story of Babel is linked to God's command to spread out and populate the earth. They resist it. So he responds collectively, Father, Son, Spirit, confusing the languages to move people on across the face of the earth like he intended. So Yahweh scatters them at the end of the story. They came together. They didn't want to be scattered, but their efforts are, are in the end futile. And the story ends with the languages being confused and people being scattered. Now this is not simply an act of judgment. We shouldn't see this as Yahweh just getting so angry and once again, okay, I flooded them, that didn't work, let's try this. Let's try to confuse their languages and see what happens. No, God knows who his people are. He made them. He knows they're wired for creativity, for ingenuity, to make technological advancements. But he wants to move things in the direction of his plan, which involves a scattered humanity populating the whole face of the globe. So he, he responds to the situation. He brings some hardship into the people's experience, the confusion of their language. Can you, can you imagine what, how that would tear apart <laughs> uh, you know, the very fabric of society if you can't understand your neighbor anymore? Walking the streets, shouting out what sounds like babbling to everybody else around you until you find somebody else who's, Oh, I can understand you. And maybe you you get together with a a little handful and go off your own way. That's the picture that the author paints for us here. But it's not just an act of judgment. You guys are, are doing the wrong thing, so boom, here you go. It's an act of moving humanity towards his end goal. The end goal of bringing the Messiah. And as people spread out after Babylon camera shifts to one one of those specific peoples and language groups. The Hebrew people, the the family of Terah, from, uh, from Peleg to Terah to Abram. And God says, and we see them moving from the east back westward, and God says, I'm going to use you to set things straight. It took that confusion of the languages to get people on the move in the direction that God, that God wanted them to go. So the languages of the world today are not a curse. We shouldn't view languages as a curse. Languages were God's idea to begin with, and it was a, um, a beautiful tool that he used to move people further along in his will. Now, uh, you know, I can thank, thank God for my livelihood today because I'm involved in Bible translation work. If you hadn't done this way back then, you know, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have a, a, a job today of helping translate his word into different languages. So I'm thankful for that, but we see the languages of the world as a blessing. Yes, it presents some challenges, but even today we're still using our technological ingenuity to overcome those challenges and to, to, um, to promote the name of God in the nations, as opposed to building a name for ourselves. So at the end, they stop building the city. And the city is given a name. 
And in a lot of your Bibles, it says that they called the city Babel, right? Babel. And that is accurate, because that's the Hebrew word, Babel. And that is actually the Hebrew word for the name of the city, Babylon. So that same word, Babel, in Hebrew, or Babel, it appears all throughout the pages of the Old Testament. But if you do an English search on the word Babel in the Bible, you'll only find it in Genesis 11. Because after this story, translators generally use the, the historical name for that city, which is Babylon. But the Hebrews always called this city Babel, from Genesis 11, where it's established, all the way through the pages of Scripture. And it was eventually the city of Babel, the Babylonians, who came and carried away God's people into captivity, uh, as you follow the scriptural narrative. And it is this city, Babylon, that the book of Revelation even tells about and uses it as a symbol for the whole world order that opposes God and his plan. And we see the great, um, the, the author of Revelation calls it the whore of Babylon, meaning uh, humanity goes their own way, tries to make their own name, engages in this global system of, uh, of commerce and um, commerce and oppression and um, um, just continuing that rat race, trying to make a name for yourself, trying to make a buck against, um, at, at the cost of your fellow man, uh, trying to get ahead, that's the, that's, that's the picture of Babylon as it's developed all the way through Scripture to the book of Revelation. And it got its start here in Genesis 11 as people use their ingenuity and creativity for the wrong purposes. So there's this great, great, uh, the start of this great cosmic struggle here between the people of God and the worldly order that we trace back to Genesis 11, founding of Babylon, Genesis 12, founding of Israel, which come to symbolize the people of God and the system of the world. So as we see this story, we understand believers must not use their human ingenuity for themselves, but to honor God. That's the answer to the question we asked at the beginning. How are we supposed to use our God-given ingenuity? Well, God's intention is to use that in ways that honor God, not in ways that honor yourself, that build up your own name. In other words, apply to the question of technology. Technological progress should not be blindly embraced. We need to critically evaluate these developments that we see happening today against the plan and character of God. We need to be carefully evaluating these technologies we're coming out with to understand what they mean for us as a people, us as a family, us as a church, as the people of God. As the people of God, we need to be engaged with these discussions and considering them on a constant basis. Yes, it can be overwhelming, but we have an obligation as God's people not to be following blindly along so that we end up in Babylon. Because we know our future is in the new Jerusalem. And we'll... Um, and we have a responsibility to be steering the global conversation towards that end, to be making a name not for ourselves and for humanity, but for God. Three implications of this truth, this truth that we're responsible to use our ingenuity not for ourselves, but to honor God. Implication number one, 
Yes, we acknowledge that God has given humanity creativity and ingenuity to do great things. We don't need to be afraid of new things. That's how God has wired us as people. And it can be an act of worship. I mean, that was what the great cathedrals of Europe were made for. These great, the greatest examples of human architecture and art in the day. Beautiful paintings on the ceilings and, and, and magnificent steeples that, paint up to, that point up to, to the heavens. These buildings were made to, to make the local peasant population look up and say, wow, not because of the great Lord or the great king that has built this big building for you, but to point people's attention up to the creativity that God, God gave us this creativity as a reflection of him. And when we observe the creativity, it lifts our thoughts upward and give him glory. I mean, I even felt that as a college student walking around on the streets of downtown Chicago. I mean, I remember I went up to Chicago uh, from St. Louis. We don't really have, we've got the arch, yeah, it's cool, but it kind of stands on its own. Um, walking around in downtown Chicago as a college student at Moody, I was just constantly going, oh, wow, just blown away by the, the awesome majesty of this architecture that people had made. And yeah, the guy who built that Sears Tower, or the Willis Tower, it's called now, you know, he probably was thinking of, how are people going to remember me? But guess what? I couldn't tell you who, who designed that. But guess what I can tell you about that person? That person was made in the image of God and had the creativity and skill to build that tower, not as a testament meant longstanding to, to that person's own name, but to the God who gave him that ability. That's what the human architecture makes me think about. And so we can embrace human technological advancement uh, if it points us in that direction to think about God and his, his greatness. How might we be tempted to make our name for ourselves today, though? You know, we can easily take that, that creativity he's given us and start investing it for ourselves, make a name for ourselves. Maybe it's your family. Maybe you want to uh, carve out a space for your family. So you're focused on getting the land and developing it and making this nice, nice house and property you can pass on to your children. Boy, I face that temptation every day. I would love to have a nice little farm out in the country that I could, I could just put all of my efforts and my resources and my time into making a good place for my, my kids to grow up and run and play and, uh, and ultimately a name for myself. At John Furch, this is the Furch Ranch, right? But that's not God's plan. It's not God's plan. Or maybe it's your, maybe it's your work. Maybe you, you put all of your efforts into your work, making a name for yourself there. We have companies making a name for themselves. Even in St. Louis, we've got companies of, with people's names on them, right? Anheuser-Busch. Some of us might work for Anheuser-Busch. Uh, other big companies in the St. Louis region that make a name for themselves. You know, we've got Boeing, we've got Monsanto, and we work at these companies, or it's, it's Bayer now, right? It's not Monsanto anymore. We work at these companies, and, and, and we invest our lives into them. We pour ourselves out into them. Um, 
for good reason. These companies are doing great things all around the world. Um, great technological advancements to, to help feed the world made by um, the Monsanto company. Uh, we can thank them for the food on our table. But what happens when these companies use their God-given talents and abilities for evil, for injustice? We as God's people, if he has you in one of these companies, your loyalty is not ultimately to that company, to toe the company line, to you know, help with any cover-ups going on. This happens in every company because we, we, we know how people operate naturally. I'm not singling anyone, any company out. I'm saying all of these big-name companies and the little-name companies in St. Louis have this, this human motivation not to promote the name of God, but to make a name for themselves. And we as God's people, who he has embedded in these companies, have the responsibility to be God's spokesman. Speak up when you say something wrong. Take a stand. Say, no, that's not right. I can't go along with this. Because of the influence, that this, the impact that this will have on, on people. It's unjust just to make a buck. We as God's people have the responsibility to stand up for the name of God as he gives us the opportunity in the places he's put us. Or we might try to make a name for ourselves even through our own building here. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say Hope Church wants to do that. If you look at the, the uh, allocation of our resources, we put a disproportionate amount of our funding into world missions around the world. I and mean, we've even got Pastor Clint over in the Philippines right now. But it's a constant temptation. It's a constant temptation to think about how can we make ourselves more comfortable? How can we make our uh, building look just a little nicer, not, not for God's glory, but for attention in the neighborhood, for, um, for people to think, oh, those people at Hope Church. No, it's not about the people of Hope Church and what we can do with our funds to make people notice us. It's about how we use those funds and the resources that he's put in this church for the glory of God around the world. So, so God's given us that human ingenuity and creativity. The, the second implication is that technology is not morally neutral. Technology is not morally neutral. Okay, you might say, oh, it just depends if this is used for good or used for evil. But you know what, anytime a new technology comes along, it has the fundamental capacity to change the whole horse, course of, of human society. Think about the invention of the printing press. Thanks to the printing press, you know, we can all have our own individual personal Bible. That's generally, that's a good thing. But think about how it changed the way we experience God's Word. We no longer experience God's Word, first and foremost, in community. You know, it used to be to... To talk about God's word, people, they didn't have their own book. They'd have to get together. They'd have to chat. They'd have to talk. They'd have to process it collectively as a family, as a community, uh, in a place of worship. Now, we're very individualized. What does it mean to you? And we don't talk as much about what does it mean to us because we're reading it in isolation. We're individualized, and the printing press has enabled that individualization of our faith to the point where we now have just about as many denominations as there are Christians. We can all go out and start our own denomination if we don't agree with 
what's being taught over there or over there. I'll, I'll go start my own church, right? And that we can thank technology for that, for better or for worse. It's not morally neutral. I'm not saying that the printing press is evil, but it impacted us. And we need to be thinking through how these technological advancements will impact us on down the road in the future. We started putting our broadcasts on live stream during COVID. We had to weigh that decision very carefully because, again, it's further individualization. You can watch church at home in front of your computer now. You don't have to go talk to people anymore. Is that what God's plan for the church is? Well, we made the decision that when, when it was important for us to, to have that ability, the, 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 um, the benefit outweighed the, the, the dangers. And so we made that decision as a church. I made a decision today not to use the PowerPoint screen because I felt like it's a distraction sometimes. Pastor Clint's got like this symbiotic connection to the person up there to where they're always like, they're always right with him as he's preaching along and, and they've got just the right slide up on screen. When I get up here, it, it's confusion. I'm clicking the clicker and it's not working and, and I'm talking to the person up there when I really need to be talking to you. Say, go to the next slide, go back. No. It's a distraction sometimes, so I made that decision. I, I'm just going to bring the word without the, without the, the visualizations today. Um, so we have to be considering, those are examples of how we consider these things um, in our families. My son asked to get a Discord account uh, earlier this year. What did I do? I said, no, that's evil. We're not going to do that. We're believers uh, and we're not going to embrace that because people get radicalized on there. Discord is this, this uh, social network, basically. It's been in the news a lot because um, it gives um, um, bad actors easy voices into the lives of our children, our youth. And we see a lot of radicalization happening to where some of these shooters, they get these ideas from their Discord groups. So what do I say as a parent? No, we're not going there. I don't want that in my house. No. <laughs> I, I, I need to help my, my son engage the world and think critically through technology. So I say, yeah, let's get Discord, but guess what? We're going to put your, your password on my phone here so, you know, I can help you through these things. And, and so that we can see, uh, you know, what groups you're involved with and, and I can help my, my children navigate technology in a good way. That's my responsibility as a parent, as much as they might hate it. But that's, that's our role. Those are examples of how we, as God's people, can be using and engaging these technologies in a good way. Last, last implication for us is this. God will use hardship to mobilize people towards his will. God will use hardship to mobilize people towards his will. What happens when they hunker down and start making a name for themselves? He brings hardship into the world to, make, to move them in the right direction, to get Tara's family moving back towards the promised land. He brings hardship. And we will see the same today. Look at how God used World War II to mobilize the American church to missions. Before World War II, the American church was very inwardly focused. But as these, um, as these soldiers went across all across the world to fight in the war and saw the, the foreign lands and built relationships even with, with people in those countries, they come back from the war. And what do we see happen after the war in the 50s, 40s, 50s, 60s? 
this great explosion of mission organizations being founded by American soldiers who want to go back and serve the people that they worked with in the war. New Tribes Mission, Send International, um, others we could trace back to this, this period, post-war period of people having this hardship of war and being mobilized, catching the vision for God's plan around the world. So just as, as the medieval, the, the primeval, not medieval, the primeval humans were given that command to fill the earth and they resisted it, we as God's people in Acts chapter 1 were given the command to go where? The uttermost parts of the earth. And what do we tend to want to do? We want to stay home. It's comfortable. We've got this nice building. We can make a name for ourselves here. But God will mobilize us one way or the other to accomplish his ends. We saw that in Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 1 to 6, the church stayed in Jerusalem. And they had a great worship service there. But that wasn't where God wanted them. In Acts chapter 7, he brings martyrdom and persecution into the church. And the church is scattered and the gospel begins to spread. So if we as God's people ignore his commands to use these technologies for good, for the proclamation of his name around the world, God will mobilize us one way or the other. So we need to keep that in mind. And when we do experience hardships, hardships like COVID, hardships like whatever might come your way, personally or as a church, remember God can use these to accomplish his purposes, just like he did in Genesis 11. So the Tower of Babel reminds us of the dangers of using our God-given creativity for our own selfish reasons. There's a dark side to human technology, yes. It has the potential to irrevocably alter the course of human history. When people use their ingenuity for their own ends, God intervened with judgment. So let's take the message. Like the ancient builders of Babylon, we live in a time of great technological innovation and expansion, global unity. And these offer opportunities for the spread of the gospel like never before. But at the same time, they also have the potential for great injustice and great oppression of our fellow human. As God's people, let's be cautious to use these technologies and how we embrace them in, into our lives. Let's constantly be investigating and investing our human technology, not for our own honor and glory, but for the name of God. Let's pray. God, we live in confusing times, and we all face these challenges of how best to use the, 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 the great things that you've given humans. It's confusing as we see the pro proliferation of technology and we, we feel threatened by, by these things sometimes and we just don't know how to respond. We ask that you would give us wisdom and insight. Guide us as parents. Guide us as teachers. Guide us as leaders and people of influence to make wise decisions to use these things for your glory, God, and for the spread of your kingdom, 
rather than to make a name for ourselves and humanity. Give us grace this week and insight into these questions. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.